Hello and welcome to Dog Talk with me, your host, Nick Benger, the ultimate podcast to help you take the next step in your dog training journey by learning from the best experts from around the world. Hello. I'm actually, I'm buzzing. I'm a little bit excited for this. Firstly, because this is one of my favorite podcast episodes I've ever released. But secondly, because I finally get to tell you what I've been teasering for ages, which is we are going to be launching a mentorship scheme. And by the way, I haven't hardly written any notes for this. So I'm just passion talking now because I'm just buzzing about this. So basically... All of the time, I'm either working with people that want to become dog trainers or they already are dog trainers and they don't have confidence. You know, I'm talking to them on a phone, I'm guiding them through cases, I'm I'm working with lots of people doing this kind of stuff. But, you know, a lot of them were asking for more. You know, we want to do some kind of something a bit more structured. We really want to have a, a program. So I've started putting that together over the last few months. This course is going to be very, it's, it's, you know, it's limited to 10 people because it takes up a lot of my time. I'm really going to be pouring a lot into this. There's going to be a lot of personal help with everyone. This isn't going to be one of those courses where you pay for it and you never talk to the person that you've worked with. You know, this is, I'm going to know all of you. I'm going to work with all of you. I'm going to guide all of you through this. So basically this is for people that are inexperienced or they don't have the confidence to start up. Maybe they already have started up, but they're kind of, you know, they're having a bit of a confidence crisis or or whatever it is, right? This is for people that really want to get their shit together, really want to take it to the next level now. You know, I know there's a lot of people out there that are stuck in this stage. And I was stuck in this stage for a long time where you're going on every bloody course. You never feel ready Right. And you have all these objections like, you know, if how can I afford to leave my job? Right. Am I going to make enough money as a dog trainer? Can I seriously do this? Am I too old? Can I retrain? Whatever. Right. Like everyone gets there's so many great or potentially great dog trainers are stuck. And I'm, I'm really passionate now. And this is what I've been working on about taking this to the next level. So to kind of quickly summarize some of the stuff that we're including here. I'm going to be teaching a class every single month. I'm going to have a class taught by a guest instructor and our guest instructors, the names that we've got are just insane. I'll go through that in a second. We're going to have two live Q&As every month. We're going to have two 30-minute one-to-one coaching calls. That's just me and you. We're also going to have a secret Facebook group so we can share videos and talk and ask questions and all that kind of stuff. And let me get back to these guest instructors. Let me pull up some of the the names that we've confirmed so far. So, so, and the names we haven't confirmed are crazy as well. You know, we're talking with some really awesome people. We've got Michael Shikashio that's going to be talking about aggression. We've got Debbie Jacobs who's going to talk about fearful dogs. We've got Milena Martini. She's going to do something on separation anxiety. We've got Craig Ogilvie. He's going to talk about play skills. We've got Dominic Hodgson to help people set up and make sure that they're making money and their business is legit. You know, the, the business side of things, because a lot of times that gets forgotten. We've got Jane Arden, right? Who's just a complete badass. So this is, this is, I'm so excited. This is probably the biggest thing I've ever done and it's going to be insane. Um, so that's what we're looking at doing, but there's only 10 spaces for this. So this is going to fill up fast as fuck, to be honest. <laughs> so, you know, I I, I want to make sure that we're getting all the right people on this. Uh, this is the only advertisement on a podcast uh, that I will have done so far. And this is probably the only one I will do. So I'm just warning you now, this is, so if, you, if you're if you interested in this, if you want to take this up, if you want to find out more details, because we've got a little more details on the page, then you can do that by going to mentorship.nickbenger.com. Okay. I'll, I'll put that link in the show notes as well, but you really need to act on this quickly because that is extremely exclusive. So it's mentorship.nickbenger.com. All right. Now, let me get to the podcast. 
So Clive Wynne is a behavioral scientist he's, and he's a psychology professor. He directs the Canine Science Collaboratory at Arizona State University and is a director of research at Wolf Park. His brand new book, Dog is Love, Why and How Your Dog Loves You is available to buy now. So let's get into it. Well, hey, Clive, welcome to the show. Nate, thanks so much for inviting me. It's great to be talking with you. It's cool to have you on. You've been requested loads by loads of people that you know, really enjoy your work. And also, I'm hoping that you can make me feel less mad because I remember when I was in college, I would always try and exp- I did animal management in college and I would always try to explain to people that kind of relationship with your dog, right? Like... Uh, for me, it, it felt quite magical, you know, it felt quite, you know, it, there's something that was kind of intangible about it, you know, there's something like special about it. And like trying to explain it to people was really difficult. And, you know, like just certain things like how he would pick up on, you know, and now I think of it as picking up on cues that maybe I didn't even realize I was giving, but it was right. almost like there was a, uh, he could almost read my mind in a way, you know, he knew what to do before I'd even asked him to do anything. Right. So I'm hoping that you could. (laughs) I I mean, I I know exactly where you're coming from, Nick, and I think you're totally on the money that I think that this is one of those cases where science has been sort of slow to catch up with what a lot of people have known. Well, I was going to say, you know, not just for years, but, you know, there's evidence going back thousands of years, thousands of years. There's, there's ancient Greek writings and you read these ancient Greek writings and it's like, yeah, you know, that's exactly how it is with a dog. The dog is, is very sensitive to what you're, what you're doing. And especially the dog is emotionally highly attuned to how you're feeling and what's going on in your life. And these are things that, you know, people have, have, have experienced this, as I say, for thousands of years, and yet you go into the university, you go and talk to scientists and researchers, and they're like, no, no, you know, obviously you're, you know, you love your dog, so it's, you know, it's got to your head a little bit, and you're a little bit deluded now. And no, actually, the people were right, and the scientists were the ones who were slow to catch up with what people, what people know. Well, it's really hard to kind of articulate, isn't it? Because it's something that's really felt you know and i think people that haven't really had that connection with a dog do look at you like you're a little bit insane when you when you try to explain it to them right 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 i mean and i mean well you know some people are crazy there's no doubt about that (laughs) (laughs) and everyday people's ways of explaining things are are not always on the money so I, I remember very distinctly quite early in this business when I was when I was new to giving talks to the general public. And I gave a talk about some of our dog science. And this guy came up to me afterwards and, and he was explaining to me how his little Westie was psychic and could read his mind. Because how did he know this? You know, so he knew this because the dog knew when the guy got up, he was an older man, and when he got up from his armchair, the dog he could tell that the dog knew whether the guy was just going to make himself a coffee or go to the loo or whatever, or that he was actually going to take the dog out for a walk. And to a layperson, the only way they have of trying to understand that is that it seems like the dog is psychic because, you know, he hasn't told anybody. He's not, he, he doesn't recognize himself as doing anything differently each time he gets up from his chair. But those of us that are behavioral scientists I uh, have to recognize that there must be some difference in his behavior. Each time you get up from your chair, you don't notice yourself doing it, but there must be something different about the way you carry yourself as you get up and as you start to move that the dog who has nothing else to do, right? I mean, you think about those of us that have children and dogs, right? Your kid, when your kid's really small, your kid's very, very dependent on you. But quite quickly, children develop a level of independence and then, you know, by the time they're like my son, a teenager, they don't pay any damn attention to you at all. And they can highly, you know, they can operate the fridge. And so long as you keep food in the fridge, they can feed themselves. And obviously they can go to the loo on their own, all this kind of stuff. But your dog remains in this state of utter and total and complete dependence on you for absolutely everything, right? I mean, 
if, if, if your dog ever shows any signs of getting into the fridge or getting into food cupboards or whatever, you do something to make sure that he or she doesn't do that, right? I mean, you create your kitchen so that your dog is not self-serving into the food that you keep for yourself. And most of the time, our dogs can't even do toilet operations without first coming to us and getting permission to go to the place where it's okay to do toilet operations. So what I'm getting at is our dogs have such complete and total dependence on us that they spend their whole lives lying there with half of one eye open, just keeping an eye open for anything we might do that predicts that something that they care about is going to happen. And so they develop a sensitivity to our behavior that is so fantastic that in the end it looks to us like they're reading our minds, that they can actually see inside our heads what we're intending to do, when it must be that they're seeing patterns in our behavior that we ourselves cannot identify. Yeah, well, that's kind of what I fall back on with the dog training stuff, right? Like we, it comes down to those little subtle cues, right? Whereas, yeah. Which is where this kind of idea of relationship, I think, can become a little bit hard to materialize because you can explain behavior, can't you? When it starts getting into the realm of emotions, it starts becoming harder to because we can't, it's not as quite as observable, is it? Right. So, so all we can ever actually see are behaviors. Okay. And, but certain patterns of behavior are evidence of things that are going on. So sometimes a certain pattern of behavior shows you that your dog has remembered something. Now you can't see memory, but you can see the behaviors that show us that your dog remembers. So my dog, there's a, there's a home in our neighborhood where an older couple live and they sometimes leave out dog treats not leave out dog treats, sometimes hand out dog treats if they're home when the dog comes past. And, uh, and I know that my dog remembers this because every time we go past that house, she slows down and she looks over there. Now, I can't see her memory. That's inside her head. But I can see in her behavior that she remembers something. And the same with emotions. You can't directly observe an emotion, not just in a dog. You can't directly observe an emotion in another human being, but you observe their behavior and their behavior tells you about their emotions. So most people who live with dogs, all people I would think who live with dogs, can easily tell whether their dog is happy or sad. I mean, they have this attachment on the end of their butts, bottoms, as you would say. Um, uh, they, have, they have their tail on the end of their bottom. And, and it tells you very clearly how they're feeling. And I, I think it's in a sense, you know, it's something we take for granted that we know that a, wagging, a happy wagging tail versus a sad, scared tuck tail. And people find it so easy to read that behavior, so natural, that we don't stop to think about how miraculous it is because we don't have tails. And even the parts of our bodies that we have, like our arms, that we could raise up and wag or tuck down just like dogs do. Nobody does, right? If you ever met anybody who went around wagging their arm the way that a dog wags its tail, <laughs> you'd think they were completely crazy. Well, they wouldn't be completely crazy. But I sometimes do it in front of audiences just to try and convey how miraculous it is that we learn by living with our dogs the ways that they express their emotions. And uh, once you become attuned to how dogs express emotions, they are extremely emotionally expressive. And when you come home and your dog is happy to see you, you couldn't possibly fail to interpret that behavior correctly, I think, because it is, it is very compelling. And so packages of behaviors tell us our dog's emotions. And we see their happiness and sadness their anxiety, my stupid dog got frightened two nights ago by something in the back garden, I don't know what, and uh, she came in and she woke me up and she, she insisted on trying to sit on my head for reassurance. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> I was really annoyed, actually, because I didn't get much sleep. But, you know, it's interesting that her anxiety is something that she's very well able to communicate to me. Um, so, so dogs do experience emotions. Their, their lives, I think, are emotionally very rich. Um, and we easily learn to, to understand those emotions. Um, uh, now, we can, we can get carried away because I think there are emotions that are more cognitively, more intellectually complex. And those more cognitively complex emotions 
are probably not experienced by our dogs. I wanted to get to this, Clive, because when we think of that idea of like packaging up behaviors and then kind of attributing emotion to that, like there are lots of things that people do maybe wrongly attribute emotion to, like you know there's always been like the classic argument about do dogs experience jealousy or shame because there are behaviors that people read as being those emotions right people aren't really sure about it right absolutely so that's exactly what i was what i was edging towards nick that um that there are these more complex emotions that you have to you have to be able to think things through more to experience this emotion well, one of the ones that I think is is pretty pretty clearly demonstrated that dogs do not experience is guilt. So guilt is an emotion where you not just that you do something wrong, that you make a mistake, but that you know that you were wrong to do this. You know about social norms, about the rules of your society, and the rules say you shouldn't have done this. And so because you understand the rules and you know you broke the rules, you experience an emotion we call guilt. And Alexandra Horowitz at uh, Barnard College in New York City, uh, as well as Judy Hecht and some other people, have now done studies exploring whether dogs experience guilt. And it's clear that although dogs have a facial expression, a bodily posture, that to a human observer makes it seem like they're guilty, that actually this bodily posture is just about uh, the dog's concern that you are annoyed with them, that you are angry with them. It's very well demonstrated that this bodily posture comes about because the dog is trying to trying to make good with you, trying to conciliate you, trying to calm you down because it sees that you are angry and annoyed and that the dog does not actually have enough intelligence to understand that there are social rules and that you've broken one of these rules. That's not the concern the dog has. The dog is just concerned that you are annoyed. Um, so how do we differentiate? How do we know that, you know, guilt is something they don't feel, but love is something they do feel? Well, right. So love is a much simpler emotion. So there are simple emotions, straightforward emotions, like happy and sad, and like love and like fear. Uh, these are things you don't have to be, you don't have to be smart to love, right? You don't have to be clever to be happy. It probably doesn't even help. <laughs> um, <laughs> okay. So you don't you don't have to think things through to be able to experience certain very basic emotions. And it's abundantly clear that our dogs do experience happiness and sadness, fear and relaxation, and they experience love. And we see that in how we see that in how at the everyday level, anybody can see when they come home that their dog is happy to have them home. That's a very, very simple demonstration. And we've done experiments where we found that when people have been out of work all day and they come home, if you set up a scenario where the dog now has a choice between a bowl of dog food and the opportunity to interact with their owner, and they've got to choose one or the other, most of the time, the dogs, even though they haven't been fed all day, would rather go to their owner and stay hungry for a moment than go to the bowl of food. So we can see that the, that the human is a really powerful thing. And then there are experiments that people could not do for themselves at home, more complex kinds of studies. So there's a professor at Emory University in Atlanta, Georgia, who has trained dogs to lie very still in brain scans, right, in these MRI scanners, where you can actually... I mean, this has only before been done with human beings because previously only humans could be told you've got to just lie very, very still and we're going to scan your brain. And okay, the machine will make a lot of loud whirring and clicking noises, but they're nothing to be worried about. Well, Gregory Burns with his collaborators, they trained dogs to do this so that the dog is wide awake, lying in a brain scanner with these headphones on to muffle the very loud clicking noises of the scanner. And then they show the dog signs that indicate that the dog's owner is nearby and they can see how the reward centers of the dog's brain light up when it perceives that their, that their beloved owner is nearby. So it shows you and lights up just as much as if you show them that they're just about to receive a piece of hot dog, a piece of sausage. So we can, we can directly measure in their brains how the approach of their beloved human being is as rewarding as the most rewarding piece of food. 
How do we know that that relays love? Because, for example, you know, when we talk about training, we talk about like secondary reinforcers, right? Things that predict reinforcement is coming. Right. So, for example, the presence of the owner coming might represent to the dog, hey, you know, good stuff is about to happen. Or, uh, you know, and there seems to be a difference there between predicting a a reward or reinforcement and actually loving the thing. So, for example, if I if we clicked the clicker, right, that I would imagine that would that would trigger the reward sensors in the brain, but we wouldn't say the dog loves the clicker. Right, right, right. So what Gregory Burns did was an experiment where he measured how much the dog's brain's reward centers light up to the expectation of their owner appearing, how much the dog's brains light up to the expectation of a piece of sausage appearing. And he first found that for many dogs, the reward centers light up more to the person than to the sausage. And then he took the dogs out of the scanners and gave them a choice in a large room between the owner sitting on a chair and a piece of sausage. And most of the dogs prefer the owner to the sausage. And this lines up exactly with how much their brain centers, reward centers lit up in the scanner. So that's that's one piece of evidence. But of course, you're right. I mean, love is, I mean, if we want to talk like behaviorists and, hey, you know, I can do that. I speak behaviorists. <laughs> If we're going to speak behaviorist, love is finding another being reinforcing, right? That, that's the behaviorist definition of love. Yeah, I wanted to get to that, Clive, because that's, you know, we're always looking to define terms. And I, I think that was really important because depending on how you define it, probably de- it's like anything, right? Like if we could define that in different ways and maybe dogs would feel that or wouldn't feel it depending on how you define it. Yeah. Right. So, so in the, in my scientific writing, I don't use the word love, right? Um, in my scientific writing, I use terms like affiliation, uh, sociability, and specifically hyper sociability. So one of the pieces of research that I've been involved in myself, we collaborated with a geneticist and uh, we did some very simple studies of how interested animals are in approaching a human being that they have a strong relationship with. And so we worked with dogs and we worked with hand-reared wolves. There's a, there's a group out in Indiana, Wolf Park, who've been hand-rearing wolves since 1974. Yeah, that's Ken, right? Ken McCourt. So, Ken, Ken McCourt Yeah, he's been on the podcast. Time. That's right. He's often out there. I haven't yet. So he's, and, and um, they are probably the world's finest hand rearers of wolves. So you can hand, you can tame wild animals, right? Lion tamer, that's a real thing. It's maybe a risky form of employment, but it's a real, <laughs> it's a real job. And um, if you get a wild animal when it's very young, and you bring it to human beings 24 hours a day, seven days a week for the first few weeks of life, then that wild animal will imprint, right? That's the the term that's used in the scientific literature uh, for the special kind of bond that develops uh, early in life. And wolf park are very good at this. So they have wolves that have been hand-reared. And we measured dogs and wolves social interest in the people that they know very well. And it's a very, very simple test. You just have somebody sit on a chair, you mark a one meter radius circus around circus circle around the chair, and you measure how much time does the animal spend inside the circle. So it's the simplest possible test. And what you find is that your dog will spend almost the whole time, we give them two minutes each, almost the whole time inside the circle. Whereas wolves, even these very carefully hand-reared wolves, I mean, they do recognize certain people and have an interest in certain people, but they, they spend maybe 30 or 40 seconds inside the circle with the person. So we can see a big difference in the behavior, the affiliative behavior when we're talking in scientific terminology between the wolves and the dogs. And then we also sent DNA samples to some geneticist collaborators And they went in and they looked to see, are there any genes that account for this difference in the behavior? 
And sure enough, there are three genes that account for this difference in the behavior of dogs and wolves. And you can ask then, well, so what do those genes do in human beings? And in human beings, those genes are among the genes involved in a very, very rare behavioral syndrome. This syndrome is called Williams-Buren syndrome. It's extremely rare. It involves a lot of genes and it has a lot of impacts on a person. Um, it, it tends to lead to intellectual disability. It leads to a strange facial structure. It leads to heart deficits. But it also leads to a very strange thing that in the medical literature is called hypersociability and, or exceptional gregariousness. And what that is, is that these are people who treat everybody like a friend. They love everybody. I've, heard, I've read them described as like very friendly drunks at a party. They just love everybody. And these three genes that we identified as being responsible for the difference in gregariousness between dogs and wolves, those three genes have also been shown independently to be the genes that are responsible for the exceptional gregariousness of people with Williams syndrome. So I think that if we accept that people love people, if that, has, if that statement has any meaning at all, if there's any, you know, for a behaviorist or anybody else, that there's some meaning to saying that people can love people, then dogs love people. And we can see that, that it's the same genes that drive uh, love in, in people who, who show this exceptional lovingness, lovingness and, and in our dogs. So, well, that's, that's, uh, that's really fascinating. And I, I guess the question here that's being answered is, do dogs love people as opposed to are animals capable of love? Because, you know, if you would have taken the wolves and, and, and drawn the circles around other wolves, right, then you could probably yeah. draw, draw the conclusion that wolves love wolves. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so, I mean, we talk about people in this situation because we are people and it's the relationship of animals to people that we're interested in. But absolutely, and this is one of the points I make in the book, we must understand that when we love dogs and we see our dogs, we experience our dogs loving us back, we have to recognize that it's not about us, it's about them. So dogs are not born with an exceptional capacity to love people. Dogs are born with an exceptional capacity to form strong emotional bonds with members of any other species. So whereas it's very difficult to tame lions, to form social bonds with wolves. It's difficult to form social bonds with members of any wild species because this critical period for social imprinting, this period early in life when we learn what kinds of beings to form close relationships with, that window of opportunity is very short with any wild species. And it has to be. Because if it were not, I'm sorry, but, you know, all those children's movies about, you know, Bambi and the animals in the forest and they're all friends, you know, all that stuff. I, I hate to disappoint anybody, but that's totally fiction, right? Out there <laughs> in the forest, it's, a, it's, it's nature red in tooth and claw, right? If you were a wild animal growing up in the forest and you started making friends with members of other species, this would be a catastrophe, because if you're a predator animal, you're going to have to eat prey, your prey, right? You can't go making friends with your prey species or you would just starve to death. And likewise, if you're a prey animal, you can't go making, trying to make friends with the predator species because they're going to eat you. So in nature, the critical period for social imprinting, that window early in life when a young animal looks around it, and figures out what kinds of beings it's okay to make friends with, that has to be extremely short. So short that it's basically guaranteed that unless some human beings step in and do something really weird with you, you will only be making friends with members of your own species. Where was I going with this? Well, no, it, it totally makes sense. I, I'm just reminded of a video I saw of a baby deer hanging out with some lions, and it just oh, wow. seemed it seemed oblivious of the danger that it was in. Probably right, for that, right. probably for that reason, that right. it just didn't didn't really. Oh, I know, I know where I was going with this. So the point is, our dogs are very, very different in this regard. Dogs have a greatly extended critical period for social imprinting. 
So it looks like dogs continue to learn what kinds of beings they might make friends with for the first several months of life. Whereas in wild animals, it's only a few days or at most a couple of weeks. And what that means is that it's very, very easy for dogs to make friends with members of other species. And that's where I was going. That's where I, that's where I was going with this. It's not about us. It's about them. It's that they have this capacity to form strong bonds with members of other species. We see it with ourselves. And maybe you see it if you have a cat in your home, your your puppy may fall in love with your cat. Whether the cat falls in love with the puppy is a different question, but the puppy is willing to form an emotional bond to the cat. And people who keep dogs to guard livestock know that if you put your puppies with your, I've seen it with goats, but it's also done with sheep, horses, whatever, uh, then the dogs will take care of and care for and guard your livestock. I don't believe it's done very commonly in the UK because I think farms tend to be smaller and so it doesn't arise. But mm -hmm. out here in the US where you have these ranches that range over thousands of acres, the farmer, the rancher, can't be out protecting his livestock all the time. So he puts puppies. I saw it on a, on a goat ranch here in Arizona. And you put the puppies with the goats when they're small and the puppies form strong emotional bonds with the goats And then wherever the goats roam over the over the ranch, the dogs follow them around and, you know, they just keep an eye on them. And if anything comes up, the, like a coyote would be what we would be concerned about here in Arizona, the dogs, they don't, they don't get into a big fight with, you know, coyotes or whatever. They just bark and growl and huff and puff and the coyotes move on, some, find something easier to get. So, um, yeah, so, yeah, I don't think... Uh I don't think we really have the natural predators in, in the UK, so it's not so much of a concern. But um, it, David Ryan, yeah, who's a trainer that he's been on the podcast before, has a really funny bit about that, how he's talking about how, you know, different dogs are bred to do different things. So, for example, retrievers, you know, if they have something in their mouth, then that tends to release those kind of feel-good, like, neurotransmitters yeah. and make them feel, you might say, happy about that right, and right. he talks about livestock guardian dogs just being high on like these neurotransmitters just sat in the field all day just right. high as a kite it's, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's quite funny yeah. Yeah, 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 quite yeah. a funny image yeah 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 well i think um you know there i it's interesting actually i mean we don't know because nobody's actually measuring the neurotransmitters uh my sense is The, the dogs that are out there keeping an eye on goats or whatever are much like our pets keeping an eye on us, that they're not, they're not, they're not, you wouldn't, I wouldn't describe them as high as a kite. They're just content, <laughs> you know, that kind of, yeah. just like when you're with your wife, husband, child, any other beloved person, you, you don't, and well, generally, I mean, maybe your emotional life is different from mine, but generally speaking, <laughs> you in their company, except yeah. that's been apart for a long time. You just feel comfortable and content. Uh, well, I guess that's an interesting point, yeah. But I think that what David was getting at is, you know, when you've bred those dogs for specific purposes, they find that thing often highly reinforcing. And I imagine there's a genetic component to that. You know, so like the Labrador is a really obvious example. You know, Labradors just love having something in their mouth and no one's taught them that. They just find it reinforcing and i think david's point was these livestock guardian dogs find being around the sheep reinforcing but maybe maybe that's not what's going on well so no i do think they find being around the sheep reinforcing uh the question which we don't know the answer to yet is whether that actually differs to any great degree between breeds at the moment studies are ongoing looking at dogs from many different breeds and looking at their genetics and seeing whether there is actually much variation in these genes for forming strong affectionate bonds. Um, my guess is that actually all dogs, that so breeds, remember, people always talk about dogs in breeds, like there's something natural about dogs being in breeds, or there's something at least ancient about dogs being in breeds. But it's important to recognize that modern breeds, these highly inbred populations, horrifically inbred populations, really, Uh, are only a product of the last 150 years. 
So the first stud books were not drawn up until the second half of the 19th century. And the stud books were only closed, right, the, the, the business of prohibiting any new blood coming into a breed. That only happened in the beginning of the 20th century. So that's much closer to the surface of dog history than many people realize. Now, it's true going back thousands of years, going back to ancient Egypt, it's clear that they had a couple or three different broad kinds of dogs, right? Uh, they had guarding dogs and they had hunting dogs, but they were not keeping them strongly genetically distinct. Um do you, and, think um, that, do, you, do you think that those guarding dogs have a shorter socialization window? Because you wouldn't want hypersociability in a dog that's supposed to guard the house, right? Well, no, you do. You do have. Um, so, you, so these dogs are still highly social, but they are drawing a distinction between my group and an outside group. That's true. Uh but like my own dog is an effective guard dog because she makes an enormous noise when people come up to the front door. But if we let those people into the house and we socially interact with them, she very readily recognizes that this person now belongs to the community of which she is a part. So I don't actually think that guarding necessarily precludes having a an easy capacity to form social relationships. They're not necessarily contradictory. Um, I guess that's different, though, isn't it? Between that's your dog is acting as a deterrent there, yes. whereas there are dogs that are bred to go further than that, right? To right. actually take exactly. someone down or bite them yeah, or whatever. Yeah, yeah. But I don't know. I, I don't know enough. I haven't spent enough time around like dogs that are used for protection to be sure about this. Um, but I remember when we were having the outside of our house painted, and I told the boss painter that since it was just the outside of our house, we would leave the back gate unlocked and he could just, you know, just send his people in. And I remember that our dog barked up such a storm at a guy who came to paint the house and that he was, he was afraid and he came back around and he rang, a, rang the doorbell and, and wasn't sure how to proceed. And I said, it's quite simple. Let me come into the backyard and talk to you while my dog watches, and she will quickly learn that you are now okay. You're part of our social group. So I don't, I don't think protection and sociability are necessarily at odds with each other, but we need to actually look into this, and we need to see whether uh, breeds differ in these genes for sociability. And the truth is there have not been extensive studies of sociability in different breeds of dogs. We don't know... And even if there are differences in the social behavior of different breeds of dog, we don't know how much of that is genetics and how much of that is environment. Because people don't just breed different breeds of dogs, so they're not just genetically different, but people have different expectations of different breeds, and so they, they bring them up in different ways. And people who are raising dogs that they expect to use as guard dogs will treat those dogs rather differently while they're young than people who are raising dogs to be, you know, pets or, or, or hunting dogs or whatever they might be. And all of those things, I mean, that's one of the things that makes studying behavior both really fascinating and tremendously challenging is that behavior is a form of an animal's equipment that is totally wound up environment and genetics. And you can never truly pull those things apart. It's always very, very challenging. Yeah. When you were talking as well, just to jump back about you know, wild animals and how, uh, you know, they have that small socialization window and dogs have a more extended socialization window. Because I think that's really important from a practical implication kind of point of view, because as dog trainers, we're always coming across dogs that, you know, are fearful, are aggressive, you know, have these different issues that I think you might say something either went wrong in the socialization period. Maybe they didn't see enough people. They didn't see enough dogs or they saw them, but got bad experiences. So how fluid do you think that is? Right. Cause you know, we, we would, I mean, I think the classic dog trainer approach is, you know, you're trying to do counter conditioning. You're trying to make these things reinforcing to the dog that have previously been aversive or negative. Um, how fluid do you think that kind of socialization window and that ability to socialize animals is? Oh, Nick, you're so totally touching on something I would 
absolutely love to study. I think that you're touching on absolutely one of the biggest and most important questions in dog behavior, which is, you know, how, as we were saying before, there's the question of like how much of it is in genes and how much of it, how much of a role does the environment play? And then there's this question about how much is fixed in the early life experiences that can never be made good again and how much can we keep going? So we were talking about the critical period for social imprinting. There's only ever been one experiment done on that, and that was done in the 1950s, 1960s, and it suggested that the critical period for social imprinting was all over by 14 weeks of age. That once a dog reaches 14 weeks of age, if it has not been given the opportunity to form social bonds with people, then they said their exact words were that these 14-week-old dogs were little wild animals. That's what is they that said. Scott, Scott and Fuller, is that right? Scott and Fuller, yeah, Scott yeah. and Fuller. Yeah. They I'm said, not as stupid as I look. <laughs> no, and, it, and, and right, it is, it is. So they did this 19, I think the actual work was done in the late 50s, published in the 60s. Um, but there's no, there's no way that's true, right, Clive? Like, it's, you know, that wow. seems more fluid than that, right? Well, so you're, you're getting it exactly. You're following my train of thought exactly because <laughs> we've all seen cases. So we've met, we've presumably none of us met any dogs that had not seen people till they were 14 weeks old. That's very unlikely. That takes, that's even feral dogs are seeing people and having some level of interaction with people. Um, to, to keep a dog isolated from people for 14 weeks is very difficult. And although I'm fascinated by this, I would never be willing to do that experiment myself. It's utterly unethical. They don't, Scott and Fuller don't say so explicitly, but it's pretty clear that they euthanized those dogs. And back in the 50s, people had different attitudes and it didn't seem like such a terrible thing. But the idea of intentionally raising a group of dogs in the expectation that some of them might not be able to make friends with people, that, that's, that's an appalling thing to do. We're not going to do that. And yet... When I think about my own dog, my own dog was a year old when we got her and it was abundantly, and we had a cat and it was abundantly clear that she had never seen a cat before, the way she reacted to the cat. She's been with us now for six, seven years, along with the cat. And our dog has gradually, very gradually fallen in love with the cat. She has formed a social bond with the cat. Now, given what Scott and Fuller tell us, that should not be possible because she was definitely well outside the critical period for social imprinting before we met, she met the cat. And so what that hints at to me is that dogs don't just have an extended window for critical for social imprinting, but then actually their window maybe never closes. So this might be part of their hypersociability, like the kids with Williams syndrome, that they can form strong social bonds where they really shouldn't, where you really wouldn't expect them to. Uh, but all of this, to me, is just hints from my experience. I be- Scott and Fuller were certainly careful scientists. I mean, I believe what they what they say they did surely is what happened. Um, I guess but- this is kind of at odds, though, with like this idea of counter conditioning, where you associate the fearful stimulus with something good, right? right. But that's that's not unique to dogs, though, right? Like no. you you can do that with a person. I, I'm assuming you can pretty much do that with any species, right? Right. But I'm not quite so 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 I'm not sure what your point is though. So, so like you, once you're past this I, this socialization window, if you right. don't see something like say that you haven't you've never seen a raccoon in your life, right? right. And maybe you're nervous about it at first, but then we start to associate it with good stuff. Right. And then you start to feel positively about raccoons. Right. Right. That doesn't say anything about your capacity, your the size of your socialization window. True, 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 true. But, um, but, but would we, if so, so yeah. So if we take a dog and we introduce it to a raccoon, of course, this is going to be complicated. Uh, <laughs> the raccoon is a living being itself with its own set of reactions. Um, should, um, so we can condition reactions to stimuli, but if an animal has a pre-existing set of reactions to a stimulus, then we may find that the pre-existing unconditioned set of reactions are so powerful 
that we cannot entirely fight against them with some kind of conditioned set of reactions. This is interesting. This is, I think, was the heart of the question I asked earlier, because what I'm interested in is, is there a ceiling, right? Like, is there a ceiling as far as you can go before, like, you can't get beyond that point? And I would imagine that that you can't just say for dogs that have a, a bad reaction to X, that would be their ceiling. Like, that would must vary between individuals right oh yeah oh yeah but so the thing the thing would be so so let's take my dog and the, and and my cat when my dog first saw my cat it was abundantly clear that this triggered her predatory reactions she wanted to chase after the cat and if the cat had not been able to defend herself there was a substantial risk that she would have killed the cat right she was she was acting in a predatory manner now, those are, that's an unconditioned reaction. The cat is an unconditioned stimulus or a release of stimulus, if we want to switch our terminology to an ethological terminology. She's, she's a stimulus. The cat, the dog didn't have to learn about chasing after living things and trying to kill them. That's part of her genetic inheritance, unconditioned reaction to an unconditioned stimulus. Fortunately, the cat is much meaner than the dog, stood her ground, and, and scratched at the dog and the dog retreated. So all of that is unconditioned. Now, if we want to use conditioning, counter conditioning, to try and get the dog to treat the cat as a rewarding stimulus, we could work on that. Of course, our work is going to be made more challenging by the fact that the cat has her own ideas about what she might want to do when the dog gets close, uh, because she also has unconditioned reactions towards this predator animal. Uh, so all of this is kind of challenging. But in principle, we could talk about the possibility of counter-conditioning so that the dog now views the cat as something rewarding but not to be eaten herself. Um, could we do that? In principle, yes, we could do that. Uh, in practice, it's going to be an uphill battle That's because certainly. we're trying to push a conditioning, a conditioned reaction against an unconditioned reaction. And in the limit, which would win? Well, it depends on the magnitudes of the reinforcers. And we can sort of control the magnitude of the reinforcer we would use in counter-conditioning, but we have no control over the magnitude of the unconditioned reinforcer, which is the, the reinforcer for the opportunity to chase the cat. So uh, it, would, it would be hard work. It could be hard so, work. But Clive, yeah. is counter-conditioning love? Could you be, <laughs> be counter-conditioned to a point that, that you experience a positive emotion, a social emotion? That's a great question. I, I think, I don't know. I mean, it feels to me like this is almost the stuff of, uh, of romantic movies, right? I mean, aren't there romantic movies where people start out hating each other and then through some kind of process, which the filmmaker wouldn't call counter-conditioning, but we might want to look at that way, they end up loving each other. I think it's a possibility. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> it's a great question. Um, you know, one kind of experiment that I guess is being ran, it's probably worldwide, but nationally is kind of, uh, it, uh, my attention is we have a lot of dogs coming over to the UK from like Romania and a lot of these kind of, I guess really feral populations. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah. And I think that that's a big issue for us as professional dog trainers in recent years, working with a lot of these dogs, it's usually Romanian dogs, but there are other countries yeah, yeah, as, yeah. as well that come over and really are terrified by <laughs> the prospect of living in a home. And recently I was reading um, Coppinger's book, the most recent one, What is a Dog? And it kind of like really changed my perspective on this. And I wanted to get your view on it too, because, you know, Coppinger says something, and I, I can't remember it word for word, but it's something... You know, he says something, he, he, it's an analogy to goldfish or something like that, or pigeons. I think it's pigeons. He talks about pigeons. But to me, it's like, it would be the equivalent of finding like a wild goldfish and thinking, oh my God, this goldfish has to be in a tank, right? And then bringing yeah. them and putting your home and yeah. putting them in your tank. And I wonder if you think that's kind of what we're doing with these Romanian dogs potentially is, you know, is this more of a, and I know that some of them cope well and, you know, maybe people are going to have a bit of backlash here because, you know, I love my Romanian dog, maybe done well or whatever. 
but there's a certain there's, there's a bit of uh, ethical ethically questionable kind of you know are we taking a wild animal and bringing them into a home is is that the conflict there i don't know clive i'm just <laughs> pass uh, to you. i share your anxiety about it um just like you i have come across some cases that have done pretty well but those in my experience have been uh expert dog trainers themselves who know about counter conditioning and all the other tools of the trade of animal training and can and have the time and are willing to invest the energy. Um, we don't, as far as I know, it, we don't have people bringing dogs over from Eastern Europe to the United States, but we have people bringing dogs in from Mexico, from the Caribbean. I've even heard of the people flying dogs over from Africa. And um, on the one hand, yes, I've heard of successful cases. On the other hand, I think the odds of success for an ordinary member of the public, not a, not a training expert, are pretty low. And I think that Ray Coppinger makes a very, very valid point that, okay, these animals uh, are uh, not going to have the same life expectancy, they're not getting the medical care and so on that our pets get, but there are other senses in which they lead rich lives. They have a liberty, a freedom to move, to make their own life decisions that our pets don't have. I think it's there's a certain kind of um, a certain kind of arrogance to think that the life of a pet is the only good life for a dog. There are other forms of of, of positive uh, life experiences, and we should recognise that. And I think it's a wonderful thing that people visit far off countries that are much poorer than their home country, and they express concern for the animals that they see there and how those animals live. But our Western money would go much further if we partnered with rescue organizations in Romania, in the Caribbean, in Mexico, in those places where our money goes much further. You think what it costs to bring those dogs over from Romania to the United Kingdom or from the Caribbean to the United States. Uh, the thousands of pounds and dollars that people are spending, which would do so much more good in country. Um, well, so well my, my my own mindset has changed on this because I I used to think, you know, this idea of dog overpopulation is a global problem, and we need to bring dogs and give them pet homes. Who cares where the, where the home is, right? Like, but yeah. I think what Coppinger changed my mind on is these aren't pet dogs, right? 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 right. And I don't think people realize that not every dog is a pet dog. Well, the you know, truth think, is. Only a tiny minority of dogs are pet dogs. So if there are, it's probably a slight overestimation, but there might be about 1 billion dogs on the surface of this planet. Of that billion dogs, maybe three to 400 million are pets. Six or 700 million are not pets. Being a pet is not the only form of life for a dog on this planet. It's not even the majority form of life for a dog on this planet. So I, I visited the Bahamas some years ago, and there's a, there's a scholar out there who studies the, the dogs of the Bahamas, William Fielding. And he, he's the kind of scholar who, he doesn't directly interact with the dogs himself. He gives questionnaires to people and finds out about people's attitudes to dogs. And it's a very, very interesting thing. He gives the same, he's given the same questionnaire to the people, the native people of the Bahamas, to native Bahamians, who are primarily descended from Africans, uh, and to tourist visitors coming on, on cruise ships who are primarily middle-class Americans, although not only. And um, in the Bahamas, you see lots and lots of dogs wandering around in the streets. And obviously that's bad, right? That's bad because the dogs can get run over by cars. They pick up diseases. They fight with each other. They get into all kinds of trouble. So that's bad. Most of those dogs are not actually feral dogs. They, they sort of belong to somebody. And so William Fielding asks the native Bahamians and he asks the American tourists, when you're out at work all day, what should you do with your dog? And primarily, of course, the American tourists, like most people I would think in Britain, would say, when you're out at work during the day, you must lock your dog up in your home because only then will he be safe and secure. And, of course, that's a good answer, and that's perfectly true. 
the native Bahamians tend to say, when you're out at work all day, you must leave your dog free to go out into the society and meet with his friends and have an interesting time because your dog is a social being and it will be cruel to lock him up in an empty house when there's nobody there because he'll be lonely. And the thing is, that's true as well. That's completely true as well. It is cool to leave a dog locked up in an empty house for 8, 10, 12 hours, as so many people do. So my point is there's no absolute right or wrong answer. These are just different forms of life which have different pros and cons to them. You know, if we, if I got to choose, I think I would probably prefer to be a street dog. I don't think I would like to be locked up in a house alone all day, even if I think my dog just sleeps anyway. Um, so, so the thing is, we've got to be, we've got to be more, and Coppinger's very good at this, we've got to take a more rounded perspective. We've got to recognize that there are, there's no single right way to keep dogs and that there are pros and cons to different choices that people make. And specifically in the case of the idea of importing dogs from very poor countries where those dogs have never been trapped inside a house, have probably never been in close proximity to people. Those dogs have developed forms of life that are the lives that they're ready for. And to force a dog into a completely different style of life, that's a very difficult thing to do that I think is only really practical to people who have real skills in changing animal behavior. And if you have a thousand, you know, what is, I don't know what it costs to bring a dog over from Romania. I know in the United States, people are spending thousands of dollars to bring third world dogs into the US and that money would be much better spent in the dog's country of origin, educating the people about how to care for dogs better and providing the supplies that are needed for medical care, veterinary care and all the rest of it. Yeah, well, I certainly think it's, you know, well-intentioned, but um, yeah, I agree with you. It seems like, a, a, I guess, a limited way of viewing dogs, you know, if they're not in the house all day, if they're not, you know, if they don't live that pet lifestyle, right. then and they see the street dog and they think, oh my God, you know, that poor animal, yeah. you know, having to scrounge for food and all that kind of yeah. stuff. But, yeah. you know, it, 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 and there is some truth to that, right? Like a lot of those street dogs, I mean, the majority of them don't live very long. You know, they don't even live past puppyhood. So, and, you know, they have to deal with parasites. They don't get vet care. Oh, so, yeah. like, there are legitimate, you know. Of course, but absolutely. That's, that's uh, as harsh as it sounds. I'm not saying we should just leave them to, you know, be neglected or whatever. But part of that is nature, right? Like every other animal in the world deals with those pressures as well. Well, right. So, 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 uh, absolutely. I mean, that's, that's the kind of perspective you get from reading Coppinger because of course, <laughs> if, 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 uh, if you want to be upset about the fact that, uh, what is it? Probably 90% of dog pups born outside of human homes, right? Street dogs, village dogs, feral dogs, 90% of those puppies are dead before their first birthday. And Carpenter would say, well, you don't, you don't need to be upset about that because, you know, wolf pups, 90% of them are dead before their first birthday. I mean, what are you <laughs> going on out there in nature? Nature is a horrible, horrible place. I'm not saying don't take the dog that's been hit by a car to a vet. You know, I'm not. I'm not. Right. <laughs> right. No, I mean, so, so, uh, but I think Carpenter misses I mean, he was, a, you know, he died two or three years ago and he was a, a great friend and, and a real inspiration. And, and he, his ideas were often meant just to challenge us to think. You know, he wasn't seriously suggesting some of the things that he proposes. He was challenging us to think more deeply. And that's, that's something we so totally need. Um, but I think there is one thing that he missed, and that is that dogs and people... Dogs are not true wild animals. Dogs are not, are not surviving in, truly in the wild. Dogs, dogs and people, there's a certain kind of a covenant between us. Dogs once were wolves and they gave up, you know, the powerful jaws and the truly fantastic hunting skills of wolves to become these animals that provide us with so much, with so much. It's such a rich thing that we have dogs in our lives and that requires something from us. So it's, it's, 
it's totally not wrong to care about dogs. We totally owe it to them to care about them. And it's not wrong to care about dogs that live in far, far poorer communities than we have the privilege to live in ourselves, right? But the nature of that caring, it doesn't make sense to invest very, very large amounts of resources, I mean, massive amounts of resources in individual dogs to go to Africa and pick of the millions of dogs that are starving on the streets of Africa or India or whatever, to pick one and to spend $2,000 to get that dog back to the United States or the United Kingdom, to get it shots, to get it dewormed, and then invest all these hours, you know, that's just not a smart way of committing your resources and of, and of showing your willingness to help. Take that money and help the whole community. When you lift the whole community, the you know, the, it's not just the dogs that don't make it to their first birthday, it's the children too. Lift the whole community. When you lift the community, the dogs will be lifted along with the community. That, I think, is, is, the, is the smart thing to do. You have that, the kind of resources that gives you the chance to bring a dog into your home from Africa or elsewhere where it's yeah. much poorer. I think that's a really fantastic point, but even from, you know, even not from the economic perspective, even just focused on the one individual, I'm not sure that's the best thing for that dog. Right. 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 To take them out of the, you know, we were just talking so much about socialization windows and all of that kind of stuff to take this dog and put it in an entirely different lifestyle is, you know, put them on a plane, you know, all of this kind of stuff is hugely anxiety provoking absolutely absolutely and that's what you hear right when you talk to people who have these kinds of dogs they know that the dog went through a tremendous trauma basically to be lifted out of its original of its place of origin and flown or whatever and and all that no it's just it's just it's just not the smart way to do it and i've been so well intentioned but i don't think it's the smart way to do it yeah I mean, I think it works out for for a minority, but not. Yeah, for... I'm not saying it doesn't. I'm not saying it doesn't work out for for some. We know, we know, we both know cases where it has worked out, and that's great, and I'm relieved to hear it. But even if it worked out for every one of them, it would still not be the smartest way to help those dogs. How many dogs are there in Romania? How many dogs are there in India? Right, there are hundreds of millions of these dogs, hundreds of millions of these dogs, and. Even if you're a very wealthy person, you're never going to be able to help more than a tiny, tiny fraction of 1% of all those dogs. Yeah, well, yeah. Well, we we certainly all love dogs and it's reassuring to know that they love us as well. (laughs) 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 So tell us about your book then, Clive. So my book, Dog is Love, which is coming out uh, September 24th, is um, is my story of how I struggled to understand what makes dogs so special. And um, originally, it's, there were a number of scientists claiming that there were special forms of cognition, special forms of intelligence that were the secret of dog success in human society. And at first, I thought that sounded quite reasonable. But then my students and I did studies and we found that there were Although dogs are very sensitive to what people are up to, that isn't what what is the secret of their success. Other animals, if they live with people, can be very sensitive to what people are up to as well. No, the real the real trick of dogs is that they have this unbounded capacity to form strong emotional attachments to members of other species. And most of the time for us, what we see is that this capacity is turned towards us, that our dogs really love us. And so we've touched on it, some parts of it briefly here, but I review all the different kinds of science, my own behavioral science, the genetics, the brain scans, the hormones, there's the whole oxytocin love story, and, um, and really show how this is what has made dogs so successful in human society. And I end up by thinking about what does this mean for our lives with dogs? Uh, we talked a tiny bit there about dogs' veterinary needs. Of course, dogs have veterinary needs, but dogs also have social needs. And I think one of the cruelest things that we routinely do with dogs is that we lock them up in our homes and we leave them alone for the whole time that we're out of work. And, you know, some people, they come home from work for just an hour and then they go back out to socialize with their friends and their dog's alone again. 
so that this dog is alone for pretty much the whole day. And I think that that, that really is quite a cruel thing to do. In, in Sweden, it's actually illegal, interestingly. They have oh, a wow. law there. You mustn't leave your dog alone for more than four hours at a stretch. And I think that's a good rule to live by. I think we should all strive to not leave our dogs alone for more than four hours at a time. Whilst we have you, Clive, is there anything else that you want to point people towards? Social media, websites, anything like that? Um, uh, well, there's, yeah, I mean, my website, clivewin.com. If you can spell my name, you can find my website. <laughs> <laughs> I'll put it in the show notes. Great. Thank you. And, and that uh, talks about the book. And also I try and remember to put upcoming uh, public events in there. Um, I'm coming to the UK. Oh, goodness. I should have the dates in front of me, shouldn't I? I'm coming to the UK uh, for the launch of the UK edition. And then I think it's the first week of October, isn't it? Hold on. When am I coming to the UK? Here we are. Here we are. I'm coming to the UK. October 9, 10, 11, 12. So um, maybe we can put some links somewhere so that people can find me if they want to come and get a book signed or anything like that. Oh, fantastic. Yeah, I'll make sure that we, you know, link all that kind of stuff as well. All right, fantastic. Well, thanks for joining me, Clive. Nick, it was fun. Thank you for inviting me. Hey, I hope you enjoyed that episode. Honestly, that will go down as one of my favorites. Clive is awesome, and I feel like we've started a friendship now. We've been talking since, and it was just completely just so awesome to kind of go back and forth. And I really want to do more of these podcasts with people that are, you know, legit scientists when it comes to dogs. So there's definitely more to come on that front. If you want to grab the show notes for this episode, go to nickbenger.com slash Clive hyphen win and of course don't forget this is the only advertisement on facebook uh, on on the uh podcast i'm going to be doing for this you're not going to hear about this again on the podcast you really need to act quickly if you're interested in jumping onto the mentorship there's only 10 spaces it's super exclusive it's going to be intense it's going to be personal i want to make sure that we take people from having a lack of experience a lack of knowledge and take those people uh, all the way through a year of of learning and get them to a point where they are absolute badasses and it's, um, it's my personal mission uh with this uh, with this mentorship program so if you're interested in that go to mentorship.nickbenger.com all right see you guys Thank you.